Hey, this is Steve. Before the podcast, I figured I should let you know that I'll be appearing on a podcasting panel at Heroes Con in Charlotte over Father's Day weekend this year, 2023. I hope to see you there. Now, enjoy the episode. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marble Reboot Club. Hi, Steve. How are you? I've been doing well. Thank you. So have you seen Guardians of the Galaxy Part 3? I did. I was not crazy about it. I prefer 70s music to 90s music. I thought the animal stuff was too gruesome for my kids, so I saw it without them. I had been warned, don't take your kids to it. And indeed, when I saw it, I'm like, yeah, my kids when I enjoyed this. They don't like gruesome animal experimentation. So I was disappointed in the movie. What did you think of the movie? I actually quite enjoyed it. I tend to be more bothered by violence and horrible things happening to people than to animals in movies, especially when it comes to fiction. You know, nonfiction, not necessarily the same. But, you know, it doesn't affect me as much as it seems to affect most people. So that didn't really get me too much. It was uh, in service of the story. I really loved the music. I especially loved when uh, Introduce Yourself started playing, which is from the uh, pre-Mike Patton Faith No More, which uh, I was a super deep cut that I was absolutely there for. I I thought it was an emotional movie. Obviously, it's the last James Gunn Guardians of the Galaxy we're ever going to get. Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was fine as an emotional conclusion. It worked on a certain emotional level. I just didn't think it was anywhere near as fun as the first two. I guess I wasn't trying to be as fun as the first two. I can't believe that we actually got counter earth. Yes. <laughs> just once again, just how deep they're able to get into the Marvel mythos at this point is really astounding. Yes, it is. It is amazing. And I did like counter earth. Yes. So let's go ahead and get into what we're supposed to be getting into here. I believe you are first this month with Amazing Spider-Man, yes? All right. This is a great issue of Amazing Spider-Man, issue number 26, The Man in the Crime Master's Mask. And this is a huge turning point. We had a sort of preview of it last month, and this month we are official. Stanley is off the pawning of this book. It's as stealthily scripted by Stanley, painstakingly plotted and drawn by Steve Ditko, according to the credits of the book lovingly lettered by S. Rosen. So at this point, Stanley is no longer going to be credited as the potter of this book for the remainder of Steve Ditko's run. He will go back to being credited as the potter once John Romita takes over the penciling in about 12 issues. But first, we're going to have a good solid 12 issues here of Steve Ditko being credited on the page. And a lot of times when you have people going back and forth about how much writing credit should Stan have gotten, there's a lack of acknowledgement of this period. Like at one point I was getting into a debate with somebody online, you know, at the time I gave more credit to Stan then than I do now. And I was saying, you know, I was getting into it with somebody and they're like, oh, well, I found a quote from Stan in which he says the last year Dicko was on Spider-Man. I wasn't plotting the book at all, but that proves that, you know, that Stanley never wrote anything. <laughs> and I'm like, no, look at the credits. <laughs> you know, Look at the credits. He was yeah. giving Steve Dicko full plotting credit for that last year. Now, what people disagree on is this is where Steve Go took over the plotting or this is just where he started demanding credit for the plotting. So we have the mystery of the man in the Crime Master's mask. Spider-Man still has no costume. He lost both of his costumes last issue. He searches for the one that may take away. He can't find it. Meanwhile, down by the docks and Dicko has a great time drawing the docks. Oh, yeah. We have... Green Goblin meeting with a new supervillain called the Crime Master. Now, you pointed out online that the Crime Master really looks more than anybody like Rorschach. Yes. Rorschach in Watchmen is famously based on Steve Ditko's question character. His character certainly is, and his look is to a great extent, because... 
the question looks very much like this character as well. But this character looks undeniably more like Rorschach than the question ever did. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just find that interesting. Because he's wearing a brown suit and he's got a little uh, same sort of band on his hat and he's got black and white on his face. We find out that the Green Goblin and this new guy, the Crime Master, have been going back and forth about who's going to take over crime in New York City. And at some one point, trusted each other enough to exchange secret identities. So they each know who the other secret identity is. But now they've sort of fallen out. And they're like, well, remember, I can expose you. And they're like, well, I can expose you. And so now they're both regretting having done that. We then cut to a bunch of crooks in a CD hideout. Tico does a great job with that. And then the Crime Master, that's the weird thing about the Crime Master is he has no powers and doesn't really have any gadgets. So he is climbing down the side of a building just with a big rope here and throws what looks like sort of a pumpkin bomb in through the window, but it's really just a note to the people saying that the Crime Master is going to take over. I think that the big problem with the Crime Master and the reason he would not ultimately be a character for the ages is that he doesn't really have a thing. Right. I kept on wondering, how is it that, he, that you know, the mobs are going to take this guy seriously as like, oh, no, he's going to take us over when he doesn't have a gang of his own. He doesn't have any powers. I would think that at some point someone would just shoot him. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, they're gangsters after all, but yeah. So this is Dicko's first issue, getting full credit as Potter, and he really does a great job. This is a well-potted issue. It's a very complexly potted issue with this big fake out where they are trying to make us think that Frederick Foswell, who when we first met him, he was working for the Daily Bugle, but he was secretly a crime boss called the Big Man. And then when we recorded our Big Man episode, I was like, oh, this is the crime master. And you said, no, this isn't the crime master. This is the big man. They're different. And I was forgetting them that one of the reasons I was getting them confused is that they at least first imply that they're both Frederick Foswell in disguise. So I don't know why they didn't just have the big man come back this issue. I would have just had this be the big man again instead of the crime master. It turns out to be a fake out. It turns out Frederick Foswell is not the crime master. But first we see that he has a secret hiding place in his hollowed out portion of his bedroom closet where he hides his special clothes. We will eventually find out that these are the clothes he wears when he wants to dress up as the underground informant patch. But we're being tricked into the time into thinking this when he dresses up as a crime master. You pointed out that not only does the crime master look like Rorschach, but this looks exactly like the hidden chamber where the comedian keeps his clothes in the beginning of Watchmen. Yeah, the very opening scene in Watchmen. It looks like it was once again inspired by this panel here. Yes. So then Peter is... Home with Aunt May, can't find his thing, goes in to say hi to Betty at work. Betty's yelling at him. I saw you pointed out that uh, Betty, <laughs> if she straightened up, would be like twice as tall as Peter here. And, uh, yeah, she, she'd be she'd be at least a head taller than him, <laughs> if not more, on page five, uh, the bottom left. Yeah, I think uh, I think what I said was either Betty's a whole lot of woman or Pete is actually Fancy Dan in disguise. Yes. Um <laughs> Shishu Jameson says, get the hell out of here. You don't have any photos to sell me. But then Pete is still suspecting Frederick. And he's like, I don't trust that guy. So he sticks a butter tracer in his hat. Pete then is at school. He's being hassled by Flash Thompson. He is finally had it. And they get into a big fight. They get in a big fist fight. Liz has to break it up and is disgusted with both of them. They get actually called into the principal by seemingly a black vice principal. Peter, being the stand-up guy he is, takes all blame for the fight. And then Flash, realizing this, decides to take the blame himself, also ultimately being a fairly stand-up guy. We get the crime master hassling various of the crooks. We get J. John Jameson at his club. We do not see Norman Osborn at the club this time. Like no, but one, one, time. Thing we, one thing we do see in the club, which uh, struck me as aspirational, <laughs> is that one of the folks in his fancy hoity-toity club 
is a black man on page eight, last, second from last panel in the background. And, you know, I know that this was the civil rights era, you know, society was getting somewhat more integrated, but I would really think that the, you know, highfalutin businessman's club would be one of the last places <laughs> that this would happen. But you know what? Racial relations in uh, the Marvel Universe have always seemed to be uh, at least a little better than they are in the real world. Yes. So then we get a really fun sequence where Spider-Man still has no costume at this point, and it goes into a costume shop to buy their Spider-Man costume, and it turns out it doesn't quite fit, and it's running up on the legs and on the sleeves and on the belly. Ditko has a fun time drawing that, and then he has to web it into place. He has to web his own costume onto him, and then it keeps coming off over the course of the book in a lot of fun ways. He is checking out Fossil's apartment when the crime master on a nearby rooftop sees him and shoots at him. This convinces him that Fosbo is the crime master. He's wrong. They get in a big fight. And I, that's a fantastic panel on the uh, top right of page 11 uh, with Spider-Man leaping out of the window across the alleyway there. It's a vertigo-inducing panel that I just love. Are you saying it's vertiginous? I guess it probably is. And it actually reminds me a little bit of one of the panels that I was attempting to draw in our old adventure newspaper comic strip thing <laughs> that we yes. were trying to do. It reminds me of a panel. We did a two-page Daredevil story at one point. Oh, wow. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, that looks yeah. like a panel from your old two-page Daredevil story. Okay, maybe maybe that's why it's jumping out at me. That's a design yeah. that I tended to like when I was trying to be a penciler. Yes, so then they get a big fight, and Crime Master does have a little gas gun, so he's sort of got a gadget. Certainly successfully takes out Spider-Man, so he must have something going on. And uh, they do the classic inconsequential confrontation, which is, this is when I first noticed this on an issue of Batman and wrote it up in my blog a long time ago, where Batman was fighting the villain halfway through the story, and then... The villain, you know, knocked Batman out and Batman fell off the roof. And then when he got back up to the top of the roof, the villain was gone. This is the classic way of ending a fight inconclusively. And meanwhile, Spider-Man's poor costume is riding up everywhere. And uh, <laughs> we can only imagine how uncomfortable that is. Spider-Man then goes to Jameson, hoping he still has the costume that he had, but he does not. Uh, and then he realizes everything is peeling off of him. And we have a yeah. black police officer on page 16. Co was definitely trying to uh, create a more diverse New York here. Yeah. Spider-Man is back in Fossil's apartment. I'm never a big fan in these stories where someone has to search someone's apartment and then go back and search it again later. I always feel like efficient plotting eliminates needs to repeat locations. But various things conspire to fool Spider-Man into thinking that Foswell is the crime master. I'm not going to go through every plot turn in this issue because there are many of them. It's very yeah. complexly plotted. Suffice it to say, there's a big meeting at the docks, a lot of crime. Both the Green Goblin and the crime master show up intending to take over the docks. Spider-Man shows up at the docks, gets in between the fight between the Green Goblin and the crime master, and does not come out well out of it. He gets knocked out by a pumpkin bomb, and then the Green Goblin is finally like, oh, he's knocked out. Let me see who he is. I'll take off his mask. But of course, and Spider-Man has webbed his own mask onto him because it was riding up. So Green Goblin can't get it off. Crime Master then goes into the meeting of the crooks and says, hey, everybody, I'm in charge now. And then who should come up behind him? But Green Goblin, who has the unconscious Spider-Man and says, all right, Crime Master, I'm speaking up. This is the Green Goblin saying that you're about to have the shortest reign on record. And uh, that's it. That's our big yeah. cliffhanger ending. I think this is a fantastic issue. It is very complex and potted. I I always love fake out stories where they set you up to think you know the solution to the mystery and it's actually a fake out and there's another solution. And I think it's this is a good two-parter that's good, that's well set up here and it's going to be well paid off next issue. The noirish elements are just gorgeous. 
I like this issue a lot. Yeah, no, this is a very well-drawn, very well-written issue. If this had been my first exposure to Ditko, I think I could have gotten past the out-of-fashion style that that it had and really appreciated what this is. This is Ditko at the height of his game. I mean, we are, and I think I mentioned this in a recent episode, we are really entering prime Silver Age Marvel here. I mean, we're getting to Ditko is at the very top of his game. Kirby is pretty much at the very top of his game. We're about to get Sinnott coming on Kirby, which just brings out everything great with him. And yeah, for the next couple of years here, we are just going to be having an embarrassment of riches when it comes to all this stuff. But the most amazing thing about this issue is that we have an issue where Steve Tickle is full punning credit and Stanley at no point says it's a crappy issue. Not on the splash page, as he sometimes likes to do, not in the letter column. In the letter column, it says, even though you think you've got the whole thing figured out, we want to warn you, Stan and Steve are a lot trickier than you think, so don't be too quick to make the obvious deduction as to who the crime master really is. Same goes for Gobby, of course. Anyway, it'll all come out in the wash next issue. Till then, let's dip in the old marble mail sack. So there is not even the slightest hint of, sorry, guys, that was a crappy issue. <laughs> yeah. So just a couple other little things here where Spider-Man is in Jonah's office talking with him. There are a couple of panels where, to me, it really feels like Ditko kind of got in his own head here, art-wise, because there's a rule in dynamic figure drawing that the shoulders and the hips should never be parallel to each other. Because when they are, things look static, things look stiff, looks like somebody's just sort of sitting or standing at attention. So you always want them at least a little bit out of parallel. Well, in that scene, there are two separate panels where uh, Steve Ditko kind of goes overboard with that. And Spider-Man just looked like he's got some sassy hips. (laughs) 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 So, yes, there there was that. But, uh, you know, once again, a small, small complaint on this for a really fantastic issue. Once again, both art and story in this. I mean, just the, all the stuff at the docks is just fantastic. Dicko yeah. loves water. He always loves water, even to the extent where he had Dr. Strange splooshing through other dimensions, as you were pointing out. Yeah. The ripple effects in the water when they're at the docks are just gorgeous. Yeah. Okay. And I should point out that the letters column does have another letter from Steve Gerber, so he is still uh, your your own future writer, Steve Gerber, is Indeed. continuing to show up here in the letters column. Indeed. All right. I suppose that next we are moving on to Fantastic Four, the battle for the Baxter building. So this is the second part of an epic two-parter. Fantastic Four, the battle of the Baxter building, Doctor Doom, more diabolical, more deadly than ever before. We've still got Daredevil in this issue. Uh, Now, unfortunately, this is where Vince Coletta's interregnum is going to be joining us. And that's unfortunate, but this really is, uh, I love this issue, though. There's some really great stuff in here, despite that. The splash page is fantastic. It's just one of those sort of evocative, sort of metaphorical splash pages, as it were. Yes. And it's just it's just gorgeously executed. So Spellbinding Script by Stan the Man Lee, Astonishing Artwork by Jack King Kirby, inked by V. Coletta, edited by Artie Simak. So if they had they started doing the, you know, a Stan and Jack thing uh, in a previous issue? They, if, like, there were two books last month. There were two or three books last month where it just said, you know, a story by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and was not 
saying who was writing and who was drawing, you know, which eventually will become standard in about two years, I think. But that was yeah. just two issues last month. And I'm not sure they do it at all this month. I think they're giving just writing credit to Stan and art credit to Kirby. Like here, I think they do that on most of the books this month. Where last we left off, Dr. Doom had uh, taken over the Baxter building. So that means that, among other things, the Fantastic Four, they don't have a base of operations, so they're on the run. Uh, They had also lost their superpowers due to a nuclear explosion from the Frightful Four. And Dr. Doom has access to all of Reed Richards' inventions and weapons. So uh, the Fantastic Four are at a huge disadvantage. And that's really going to be the crux of the whole story here. So Dr. Doom uses some kind of flying TV camera thing to go and search through the city and find the Fantastic Four and Daredevil. Daredevil, as we talked about last month, has his billy club that he turns into a rifle. Yes. Which wasn't what was in the billy club in the special cutaway we had last No, it certainly was not. No, but uh, I mean, it's neat. And uh, some people call out that on page three, where he's putting this thing together, it looks like he's got a targeting sight on the thing. And, you know, they're like, he's blind. (laughs) Why does he need a targeting sight? And uh, there are two plausible explanations as far as I can tell. One is he doesn't want people to know he's blind. So, you know, (laughs) but no, the one that I think is more likely is that Kirby was assuming that was like a flip cap that was there Uh and that and that Vince Coletta saw it as a scope and put the little crosshairs in. So as someone who has been a comic book inker, I can say that that certainly seems plausible. This was just a miscommunication between Jack Kirby and Vince Coletta. There was an issue of Birds of Prey that I inked uh, many years ago where Black Canary was dressed up as a penguin henchwoman. (laughs) And uh, she had a little monocle on her face that was kind of just dashed in there and I was like okay well I'm the anchor I'm supposed to take this stuff and you know make it look right so I was like okay I'll clean this up I'll you know do this and then the you know the penciler partway through this whole thing was like what are you doing that was supposed to just be makeup making it look like she had a monocle and I'm like okay put a note in the margins man <laughs> what are you, you know, I, I'm just trying to do my job here so uh you know I, I'm thinking this might be a similar situation like that but who knows Daredevil says okay I'm gonna go off and I'm gonna try to take Dr. Doom's attention away from you meanwhile apparently Johnny has stolen a taxi <laughs> yes the, uh-huh. They seem to think that happened last issue or something, but uh, it didn't. So it's somewhere between issues. Johnny has stolen someone's taxi. God knows where the four yes. taxi driver is. Right. Well, they say commandeered, but commandeering is really just stealing when you uh, think you're justified in doing so. Right. So they get to the Baxter building. There's a huge police presence. The police have uh, decided they're going to let. Uh, the Fantastic Four go in and uh, take it. So then at this point, we've got the interesting dynamic that the Fantastic Four know about all of the defenses and all of the weapons and all of the gadgetry that Doctor Doom has access to because they made it, but they don't have any superpowers. So it's an interesting balance of advantages and disadvantages here. But one of their advantages is Daredevil climbs up to the top and is able to go in and start fighting Doctor Doom on his own, which does indeed distract Doctor Doom from, like, say, the fact that the Fantastic Four get into the elevator and they're going up. They're like, oh, man, Doctor Doom, why isn't Doctor Doom doing anything? Like, this is just seems like madness. Is he just playing with us? And, you know, 
Mr. Fantastic's like, well, remember, Daredevil might be distracting him right now, which is indeed what's going on. Half of page seven, just got awful clutter of inking on top of page seven, where all of their eyes are just black holes. There's not a smidgen of life in any of their eight eyes on the top of page seven. Uh- the top of page seven doesn't actually that doesn't bother me at all. What bothers me is the bottom of page seven, that drawing of Daredevil in the <laughs> bottom right hand corner. <laughs> that, that's a mess. Anyway, so Daredevil is fighting Dr. Doom. There's a lot of fun visual stuff here. There's fun visual stuff throughout the entire book, honestly. There is. Uh, but there's another gadget that Daredevil has in his cane. That's just this little deflector shield thing. It looks like a tiny umbrella. He's using to shield his face at one point. Dr. Doom finally uh, gets around to doing something to the elevator right after the Fantastic Four get off. Mr. Fantastic splits off from the rest of the group because he needs to go find that gun that intensified their powers in a previous issue because he's going to use it to reactivate their powers now. And this is my big problem with this issue. Uh And they sort of explain this, but last issue, they were like, our powers are gone. We are never getting them back. We are going to have to invent an electro vibra suit for Sue. We're going to have to give Ben a remote controlled thing. We're going to have to put Johnny in a flame suit. I'm going to have to have these long robotic servo arms. Our powers are gone. And in this issue, they're like, well, we just need to go and use the power revivifier ray that we were using when we were fighting the scrolls. It's referred to as the stimulator. The stimulator. (laughs) And uh, then we'll be fine. And it's like, well, what what about last issue? And somebody does eventually say like, uh, why didn't you mention last issue? We That gun could get our powers back. And he's like, oh, it was recharging. So I was, you know, I was going to these great lengths to replace our powers simply because that was just a stopgap measure until this gun that can restore our powers was finished recharging. It feels like, once again, a conflict between me and Kirby and that Kirby is presenting these things to Lee as like, okay, this issue, there's no way they're getting their powers back. This issue, you know, they just have to get to the gun. And then Lee is like, but, but. Kirby, you know, you're you're not being consistent there. Like this is you did not set up this issue at all last issue. And yeah. we having to smooth that over in the dialogue and Kirby just being like whatever. But I don't know. This is this is my big issue. My big issue with this issue. I mean, that's part of the dynamic tension between these two that really created the magic. It it has some side effects, like what we're talking about here. But um, you know, that's you know, Kirby can just sort of go wild and then Stan can kind of clean it up and bring it into unison with the rest of this universe in the dialogue, essentially. Yeah. So uh, they get their powers back. They're then fighting Doom. Of course, Doom is still formidable, so they're still in danger there. At one point, Dr. Doom freezes them all, but then Mr. Fantastic is able to get to some steam vent and set that off to melt them all. Dr. Doom gets out to another you know, another part of the Baxter building and sort of escapes out of here and read. Now, this is a heartbreaking and morally dubious moment that is just excruciating. So at the bottom of page 13, Reed has restored everyone's powers except Ben. And Reed says, now hold still, Ben. This is the last energy burst left. I don't want to miss. Ben is on his knees, weak. And he's saying, but Maybe I don't want to become the thing again. I'm finally normal, like anyone else. And Reed says, you've no choice, old friend. With Doom still at large, we need all our fighting strength. There is too much at stake. So the first time that Reed turned Ben into a rock monster, it was 
a mistake. It was a miscalculation. It was a horrible, horrible mistake, but it was a mistake. This time he did it on purpose, knowing exactly what he was doing. And that's rough, man. I mean, you know, we always talk about how Reed can be a real jerk, but this is, this is another level. And, you know, okay, maybe they needed the thing, but I mean, come on, you, you guys are, pretty resourceful. <laughs> you could yeah. probably do this without that. So, you know, essentially Reed took away Ben's chance at a normal life with Alicia and Thing then goes ahead and takes out all of this rage and betrayal on Dr. Doom. And there's a fantastic multi-page fight scene with reversals and everything between the two of them. I noticed at one point uh, on page 17, Dr. Doom is saying, these are no more pebbles thing. They are intensified molecules. And uh, there's actually a very similar panel in Tales of Astonish Thor story this month, which is just sort of like, oh, they're molecules. Well, that explains it. Wait, everything is molecules. (laughs) Anyway, finally, the thing grabs Dr. Doom and he's got him dead to rights. And he crushes Dr. Doom's gauntleted hands and wrists. And it just looks like, you know, his wrist must just be shattered inside there. But then, you know, Doom slinks off. Let's see, did they give a reason why they didn't stop Doom from leaving? Ben's going to keep attacking Doom, and then Reed says, remember, he's still the ruler of Latveria, and as such, he has diplomatic immunity. But by defeating him so conclusively, you've broken his pride. It's the worst defeat he could have suffered, except for being actually defeated. Right, right, right. And then there's the the final couple of panels where Ben says, yeah, you got each other, but you ain't got me. Not anymore. I'm through being a fall guy for this combo. You divvy up the glamour, but me, I'm still the thing. I got the short end of the stick on this whole deal. You can get married, but not me. You can be normal, but not me. Well, I've had it. I'm through. And, you know, they're all like, oh, my God, he means it. And indeed, this is going to set up the rest of the Frightful Four storyline, which, again, is just one of my favorite storylines in this era, even though it's got some unfortunate inking on it. But this is just I I love this issue. (laughs) This This is great. How about you? I don't love it as much as you do. I think that I having Glenda there, I like having Doctor Doom, but I, I'm never the biggest fan of Daredevil. And to like have this big Doom epic be also a Daredevil guest story, I think it's sort of a, a waste of Doom. But it's certainly a fun story. And there's lots of great Kirby pencils buried under the Kleda inks. And um, <laughs> lots of great Kirby imagination, but also just completely zany Kirby imagination, like having Daredevil have a shotgun or a rifle or something. <laughs> hidden within his cane. Some of the things I liked on the splash page, they're like, Justin take his place beside the battles of Waterloo, Gettysburg, and Dunkirk. Here is the Battle of the Baxter Building. And I'm like, was Dunkirk really a great battle? It was it was more like a great <laughs> skedaddle, wasn't it? It was yeah. like, we do not want to fight you on the beaches. We are going to take <laughs> off. And uh, then then afterwards, Churchill was like, oh, right. Let's, uh, let's go and give a speech about how we're not going to do this again. Next time we're going to fight. But I love when we then get to page two with Doom pointing his sci-fi gun at the window. Mm-hmm. Is I guess it's not even a gun. I guess it's just a launcher for the drone. But I love the sci-fi gun or sci-fi oh, yeah. drone launcher he has in his hand yeah. on page two. Well, just about yeah. all the super science stuff in this in that this issue is just gorgeous. It is. Kirby is having a tremendous amount of fun. Whoever came up with the idea, whether it was Kirby or Lee, of like, okay, Doctor Doom has all of Reed Richards' gadgets. 
Kirby just ran with it. And it's like, oh, that's great. I get to draw the Fantastic Four getting attacked by their own gadgets. So it's going to be delightful. And plus, whatever gadgets Doom brought with him. I feel like it's sort of a shame that, you know, last issue, it seemed like a long time that the Fantastic Four didn't have their powers. I feel like the thing has turned back to Ben Grimm a surprising number of times in these first 40 issues. Have we ever seen him actually go to Alicia while he's Ben Grimm? And say, hey, Alicia, it's me. I'm Ben Grimm. I think we have. And the way that the writers have written it at various points when that's happened is she does not seem to love Ben Grimm the way that she loves the thing. I don't think we've had that yet. I think that happens later. I feel like this would have been a good time to go ahead and see what she thinks of Ben Grimm. But they didn't do it. And now we are done. But it's a, my big problem with this issue is just that the completely insolvable problem of not having their powers last issue seems easily solvable this issue if only they had not been locked out of their own building. And uh, the disconnect between the two issues, I think each issue works just fine. I think last issue with them coming up with cover solutions and not having their problems is fine. And this issue going like, oh, we need to make it back to the Baxter building in order to do our revivifying gun. And it does help that the revivifying gun was something that was set up in a previous issue. So we know they have they own this thing, and that's not like a Deus Ex Machina. That's something where it's like, yes, use that thing that did that in that previous issue. I just right. don't like the disconnect between the two issues where it seemed so impossible last issue and so easy this issue. Sure, I see that entirely. Yep. It's certainly a beautiful issue, and we're and going a, to have... And an, emotionally, and an emotionally powerful issue. In yeah, my, an emotionally powerful issue, opinion. I agree. Yeah, and sets up the next couple issues nicely, and then Sinat's coming. Yep, as is Galactus. Yes. <laughs> Sinat brings the Silver Surfer and Galactus with him, basically, is what it seems like. Okay, great issue, but we have spent enough time on it. So now let's go on to Journey into Mystery. Do you like Coletta? Well, then I got good news. We got more Coletta here for you. <laughs> Journey into Mystery with the Mighty Thor. Go Thunderdod, introducing the indestructible Destroyer, one of Thor's all-time great villains, is introduced in this issue. This cover does not look like it's Coletta to me. This looks like Frank Ray uh, inking this cover. I didn't look it up. Coletta usually inks covers when he inks the inside, but uh, this is an absolutely gorgeous cover of Thor fighting the Destroyer. Yeah, I think you're right. I was just going to talk about actually the very first panel in this issue. Something mm-hmm. that I found interesting and kind of confused me for a moment is the very first line of dialogue is an American soldier saying, on your toes, Charlie. Enemy aircraft zeroing in at six o'clock. And this is in Vietnam. And generally, the Viet Cong were referred to as Victor Charlie, which then ended up just being Charlie. So I was confused for a moment. Like, is he saying that Charlie, as in the Viet Cong, is an aircraft zero? <laughs> it's like, I don't know whether that had become common parlance uh, among non-veterans at that point. That um, yeah. anyway, so that that just threw me for a moment. So I just wanted to point that out before you get into the swing of things. Here. Yeah. So we've got Koth under God. Soldiers are here. Surprisingly, we actually pick up where we left off last issue, where Thor still has the young orphaned Vietnamese girl from last issue. He goes ahead, drops her off with some American soldiers, and takes off. Now it's totally unclear how far he goes here and where the rest of this issue takes place. Someplace where there's a great white hunter. So maybe he's flown to Africa at this point, but it's tremendously unclear. I assumed it was somewhere else in Southeast Asia or maybe like Papua New Guinea or something like that. Yeah. So then Thor lands, got the Northern Stones. Meanwhile, Loki is watching him from afar. Loki is like, oh, I'm going to set up some sort of trap here. There is some sort of great way hunter with indigenous guides. He then shoots a gas pellet at Thor. Now, this is the second issue of a row where Thor is knocked out and tied up. And once again, 
in neither issue does he turn back to Don Blake, which he should be doing if he is not holding his hammer. Last issue, they sort of showed it tucked into his waistband. Which no, was and, and, the and they do that it. here. But they do that here. It's still around his wrist, oh, both at the bottom of page three and the top of page four. Okay, I see. But that still doesn't make any sense. How would they have been able to drag him there if he had his shh, hammer? Shh, shh, anyway, so then <laughs> the Great White Hunter has been looking at various ancient artifacts wherever he is. And it turns out that he, I guess he is sort of prodded by Loki, who has chosen his cat's paw well, to find a hidden temple hidden behind a rock face. When the smoke clears, when the rubble is stilled, the dazed eyes of the still unsuspecting hunter gaze upon. And he says, a monstrous temple from some bygone age. And Kirby, of course, is killing it with the temple. Kirby loves to have gigantic stone giants fused together to make some sort of structure. And uh, he is doing that here. And then the Great White Hunter enters and inside he finds the Destroyer. So the Destroyer is one of Kirby's all-time great visuals. This giant gray metal robot looking dude who will going to be one of Thor's main antagonists from this point on. He was the antagonist in the first Thor movie. He was which, the, which, uh, I w- which I was shocked and amazed. I was shocked that they did that. And I was amazed by how well they pulled out the visuals in the Thor movie. They really uh, did. It, it, it can be kind of difficult because his face is just basically metal bands, uh, but they really pulled it off well. They really did. I love the Destroyer in the first Thor movie. So then we get here. Thor wakes up, easily gets out of his robes. Uh, we've got another looking down shot. Um, you were saying you like the looking down shot in Spider-Man. Here we yes. have one on Thor looking down on page seven. That's quite nice. Thor finds the hunter is frozen because his mind has transferred into the destroyer. And we get the first of many big knockdown Thor destroyer fights. So it turns out the destroyer was actually created by Odin and hidden in this cliff many years ago as sort of a failsafe weapon. If all else failed in Asgard and now Loki seemingly knew all this and let the hunter there to have him take over the destroyer, have him fight Thor. And then Loki just thinks better of it. <laughs> Loki is like, what am I doing? Like, who <laughs> am I? What am I even doing with my life? <laughs> and he's like, I shouldn't have set this up. This is going to turn out very poorly. I guess he never really wanted to get Thor killed and realizes that the destroyer can kill Thor. We then, speaking of the first Thor movie, he then is like, uh, I'd better go confess all to Odin and get Odin to shut this whole thing down. But Odin is in the Odin sleep which I had not read this comic yet when I saw the first Thor movie. And I thought the first Thor movie invented the Odin sleep, but no, it had not read this shortly thereafter and was surprised to see this actually was from the comics. Odin is of course in a spectacular bed. He is wearing spectacular (laughs) footy pajamas. Yes. I I love that, uh, that screaming Eagle or whatever it is at the foot of the bed (laughs) that whose wings basically are what holds the mattress in place. It's just fantastic. It's the equivalent of a race car bed for a child, oh, yes. but this yes. is Odin's uh, Screaming Eagle bed. And of course, it is a bed for one because Odin does not have a wife until the late 70s comics. So he sleeps in a little twin bed like any child imagines that all parents do. <laughs> so then Loki is like, uh, you got to wake him up. I've really screwed up this time. And they're like, sure you have, Loki. We don't believe you. And uh, they toss him in jail. So meanwhile, Thor and Destroyer are beating the crap out of each other. Uh, speaking of another thing that happens in the Thor movies, Destroyer destroys Thor's hammer, just slices it in two, basically. He says, yeah. my hammer, he sliced it in two with a blast he shooting from his fingers. So that is 
a shocking thing that happened in the third Thor movie. And Thor's like, well, that's okay. I can use the Norn stones, but nope. Destroyer liquefies the floor and re-solidifies it diamond hard while Thor is stuck in it. So now he is held fast. Loki tries to escape, cannot, is bound up even more tightly. The Destroyer is... I've got to say, I love that panel on the top of page 14, the second panel with Loki just frustrated with his fists against the wall. And you just see just his eyes and his nose as he just has the determination and frustration and anger just emoting from him like nobody's business. Really great. Yes. So then Destroyer sets out to destroy Thor and the issue ends. So this is quite a cliffhanger for Thor. His hammer has been destroyed he is fighting the Destroyer, who is clearly a extremely intimidating villain. Odin is in the Odin sleep. Loki is trying to do the right thing, and no one will believe him, and he's all locked up and uh, cannot be more bound more tightly. And that is a hell of a cliffhanger. This is a legendary issue, and it is absolutely wonderful. Yeah, it's good stuff. But one thing that just now occurred to me is if his hammer is destroyed, does that just like invalidate the whole 60 second thing? <laughs> like, you know, is that enchantment part of the hammer? I, I don't know. I don't know. And then uh, just, you know, we were talking about the uh, Coletta thing. Page nine, panel five. I have no clue what is going on with the perspective. Is that supposed to be a dome behind him or is that some sort of alcove? Uh, It is completely lost. The dimensionality of that whole thing is completely lost, which is very much the anchor's responsibility. And uh, it just makes no sense visually. Indeed, it does not. It is a shame. I noticed (laughs) that the hunter, when he finds Thor, thinks to himself, Thor, the greatest prize of all to any hunter. I'm like, so hunters are just out there like, oh, man, if I ever see Thor, I would love to have his <laughs> to have his head up on the wall of my man cave. <laughs> <laughs> going in a hunter's house and just got for a severed head mounted on the wall. Exactly. As I pointed out, I know so much of the original Thor trilogy is based on this issue. It is great. So then we just have a quick Tales of Asgard storyline. I failed to point out when we talked about Fantastic Four, Doom was wearing nice special goggles at one point. And here we have the second pair of awesome Kirby goggles of the month. Thor and Loki were sent out on a quest list issue. So first Thor is going to a special map maker who has an awesome pair of goggles, who is making a map for them and says, oh, by the way, I've also got a glove that makes anybody tell the truth. So uh, I'll give you that too. Thor is like, okay. And he's very, by the way, the map maker is very careful not to touch that glove himself, which is like, um, <laughs> he's got tongs for handling it. <laughs> okay, map maker, uh, we trust you. Then Loki says, hey, I've got someone who's going to come on the trip with us. And Thor's like, great, I'll shake his hand wearing this special glove I just got. And as soon as Thor shakes the guy's hand, he says, I wish thee naught but harm unsuspecting one. Once we set sail, I shall smite thee from behind and slay thee. What? What have I said? And (laughs) Thor says, the truth, thou base assassin. And uh, Thor then fights the guy, beats him up. And uh, he's like, hmm, Loki, that was the guy you wanted to send with us? Why don't I shake your hand while wearing this thing? And Loki's like, nope, I'm noping out of here. Time enough for a hand clasping later. Now there is much work to be done. I must not waste a minute. And he gets out of there. And then they head off on their quest. And we get just a gorgeous panel on the bottom of page oh, yeah. five. As we've got a flying ship taking off in the background. And in the foreground, a horn blarer to beat all horn blarers. Very similar to something out of Dr. Seuss, where he has a massive horn that is stretching its way across the panel as he is blaring that they are about to take off on their quest. I love this 
Tales of Asgard. They're doing a good job, as they're doing with Doctor Strange, of giving little mini-stories within a larger quest. Whether you want to say that those are similar because they're both written by Stan Lee, or whether you want to say it's just coincidence because they're not being written by Stan Lee, that's up to you. Yeah, so on page five, panel two, what is going on with that big thing that, <laughs> you know, so the map maker has some sort of little, what looks like a, an extruder or something like that. And he's pulling a lever and it looks like out is coming some sort of tangle of vines. And there's looks what looks like a head at the top of it with eyes. And I'm just like, I kept on staring at that. Like, what did I miss? Was there something like, is that the map? or something but no i i i have no idea what's going on also in that fantastic uh spectacular panel on the bottom of page five i will say that coletta completely made the uh mouth of the horn uh or the bell of the horn i guess you would call it look completely flat yeah. you know just did not pull that off well at all but overall a good story yes an excellent story i love that we have begun the massive epic era of Tales of Asgard, we are off to a good start. Yeah. All right. I guess it's time now to move on to Strange Tales. And this is a momentous issue. Yes, indeed. We've talked before. We had the Kirby Apocalypse, where we had the month where Kirby left most of the Marvel books. And we've had various apocalypses since then. And this month, we get to the Bad Book Apocalypse, where <laughs> yeah. we have Marvel's Two worst books. I'm going to go ahead and call it Marvel's two worst books. Come well, to well, two, an end. Well, they're two worst features because they're, they're, two worst they're both. Features. Yeah. yeah. There's two worst features. Half of each, which takes up half of an otherwise good book are both come to an end this month. So we have our final tale of the human torch and thing as a solo feature, or in this case, duo feature in strange tales and our last giant man wasp over in tales to astonish. It makes me really sad because these have been such great books and I'm going to miss them so much. <laughs> and, oh, who oh. am I kidding? No, this is wonderful news. They're both terrible books. They really, is, really are. Uh, although we, I think we discussed this issue many, many months ago in a much yes. earlier episode of this podcast. And you were going like, oh, that was an especially bad one. And I'm like, no, I like that one. So I do like this issue. All right. I, there's things I like about this issue. I'll jump in and point those out. I think that Human Torch and Thing are going out on a high note here, but uh, you do not. Well, and both of these features, which are ending, the final chapters are drawn by Bob Powell in this case. Yes. In this case, uh, it's actually inked by Wally Wood. Uh, well, it says soul-stirring script by Stan Lee, breathtaking art by Bob Powell, eye-popping inking by Wallace Wood, heart-rending lettering by Artie Simak. And I'm kind of wondering whether Wally, with his whole idea that is like, wow, this whole Marvel Method thing is just a way to rip off the artists and have them do Stan Lee's work for him as... Wally clearly thought if this might have been like, hey, can you just give me some inking work? Because that way I know I won't have to also be writing your books for you. Uh, just speculation on my part. So the Watcher shows up and uh, he's like, I need the Fantastic Four. And Ben and Johnny are just like, oh, well, you know, Reed and Sue are out doing wedding stuff. It's like, all right, I guess I'll just stick with the two of you. Not like I've got the power to go out and grab them as well. <laughs> but, uh, I guess I guess we're stuck with this. Yeah, so, the and, watcher should be able to find anybody, but he says that I have no choice. I must offer the challenge to the two of you alone. Although the chances of your survival will be sorely against you, <laughs> and it's like clearly not happy with his uh, slim pickings here. But... You, you you had many other options. <laughs> the watcher starts telling a tale of how. 
Kang has returned to the days of King Arthur, taken over Camelot, basically. And his whole point is to change history so that his enemies, such as the Fantastic Four and the Avengers, will never come to be. Which just really seems like a weird plot. I mean, it just, yes. I, 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 I don't know. I, I just don't get it. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. No, it we, makes no sense. But I yeah. always like King Arthur stories. I'm currently catching up with Prince Valiant right now. I'm, I fell behind in my Prince Valiant reading and I'm reading the stories from the 60s. I love them. I really like Powell and Woods Merlin here. I love yes. him conjuring things in the bottom of page two. I really love the first panel of page three where Merlin is conjuring and winds are whipping around him. But then Kang on the second panel of page three starts uh, whipping his own arms around and uh, sending Merlin's lightning back to him. I think those are just gorgeous panels. I really like Pal and Wood's art in this issue. I find a page three panel two to be quite silly looking. Kang looks like he's prancing about rather than using some kind of technology. But yes, Merlin is well rendered. And we have determined, have we not, that this is actually a different character from the Merlin that showed up in the early issue of Thor. Don't they later determine that, oh yeah, that was some other character just claiming to be Merlin or something like that? Something like that. Yeah. All right. So Merlin uh, has been captured and imprisoned by Kang. Kang is then able to take over Camelot. Uh, and we see a bunch of stuff with Kang in medieval times. Well, of course, I, as someone who is a medieval history major and uh, have always been a fan of the Arthurian myths, there's always the question of, is Arthur in late antiquity? Is it in medieval times? It can always be quite... Um, yeah. Anyway. Well, so, so, and there's, I mean, it's sort of standard rereading this Hal Foster, Prince Valiant, I think going all the way back to Mallory, there's a sense of like, well, the King Arthur stories are set in the year 500, except for with the castles of the year 1200. <laughs> and you just take the castles and knights and horses and uh, armor of the year 1200, and you send them all back to the year 500, and then you've got the Arthurian myths. Oh, man, is that Kang? Did Kang do that? Yes. Kang, yeah, your- this is this will forever be explained by <laughs> Kang's meddling. Kang came from like the what he says 25th century here. I think sometimes other times it's a 30th century. One way or the other, he's got this fantastic super technology from the future, and instead he is creating like a multi arrow bow and a better catapult and a stilts and some sort of really unwieldy looking servo type arms for a knight (laughs) it's just like seriously dude i mean i mean you can't bring any other better technology to this so at this point ben and johnny are finally sent there by the watcher after hearing all this being uh described to them and they get to have lots of fun fights with medieval stuff we get to see the absolutely ridiculous knight on stilts here and of course this is just the you know month after stilt man it's created by wally wood but no it just that thing looks utterly ridiculous horses do not fare well in this no they do not when it comes to the thing <laughs> so after johnny has freed merlin the battle starts to turn in the good guy's favor and so on the page 10 first panel <laughs> thing is picking up a horse it looks like by the crotch and uh the knight is still on it the horse looks terrified <laughs> yes. and then he clearly launches the horse off and 
it looks like the horse ends up landing and running off in the in the distance but i mean come on no he doesn't and then <laughs> the next page i think yes uh kang is trying to make off on a horse and thing tackles it and once again the horse just looks like non no exactly which uh just all reminds me of blazing saddles yes so in the end the watcher returns these two back to the baxter building and then reed and sue return from whatever pre-wedding business they had and they're like look at them lolling around like a pair of loafers is that what all you've got to do while i'm away it's just you know one of these uh hackneyed old things where oh i've just saved the earth and then it's like oh what are you doing all day anyway so and then there's um, no acknowledgement unlike the chime man where they actually do say like that may be the last you ever see a chime man here there's no acknowledgement that this is the end of this feature yes and we end on something that has been done i think more than once before in this feature of reed and sue seeing johnny at the end of his adventure and assuming he's just uh he's just being lazy they're like okay we will we will end as we began we will end as as we have done so many times before we'll end on a tired old ending and as this strip limps to its death <laughs> it's well-deserved and long-awaited death <laughs> yes i love that kang so first of all kang is like i'm gonna go back and take over king arthur's thing with my 30th century technology and then he's like well first he takes control of king arthur's army fair and square through a series of jousting tournaments and it's like well you don't have to play fair and square here you've got 30th century technology and then like what about tanks what about just 20th century technology right, right. <laughs> like, why not bring a whole boatload of tanks back to the 5th century or 6th century or whenever these things are taking place and exactly. uh, wouldn't they be rather impressed with those but no, they do not have them. They've just got giant stilts. Another thing we have happened in this issue, which has happened so many times before, Ben and Johnny are fighting together, and then Johnny realizes, like, oh, I have to, I should go to the castle and free Merlin. And of course, Ben is like, well, I'll be discombobulated. The kid's running down on me. He he never did anything like that before. Ben is, of course, completely convinced that Johnny is a coward. I'd have saved my life on that kid. What made him do it? What made him run out on me? And it's like, uh, do we have to do this? This is <laughs> such a lame early Marvel thing to bring back of the constantly assuming each other are cowards. As I say in my notes, a nice farewell to a bad strip would save Powell if only he'd penciled it. If Wally Wood had penciled this issue, it oh, would yeah. have been gorgeous. Yes. Yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree on that. Um, and I'd actually forgotten I had some visual notes here on some of this stuff. Uh, at one point, Merlin is saying, no, you must not. If you change the past, and of course, this is current time for Merlin, it will destroy the future. All who live in the centuries that follow may perish. It's like, <laughs> uh, they, to you, they don't live yet? I, you know, anyway. <laughs> uh, although I guess that in T.H. White's version, he was living backwards and so had lived through all that time. I'd forgotten that. Yes, in T.H. White's version, he was living backwards and had lived through the 20th century and was then moving backwards in time. So in that case, I guess this actually would be a valid thing for him to be afraid of. I'd forgotten that. Right. And by changing the past, I will gain revenge on my enemies in the 20th century. Again, you could just leave the 20th century alone, dude. It doesn't matter. Enemies such as the Fantastic Four, because they cannot exist once the past has been altered. (sighs) 
okay. Um, of course, before we knew about chaos theory, now we know that even just sitting foot in the past but altered the future. But instead, right. he thinks he's got to, you know, really take control of this army and really, you know, make major changes to the past in order to alter the future. There's, uh, we don't, we don't have the butterfly effect yet. Yes. Uh, so let's move on to better things within this same issue. We're going to do Doctor Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts, Earth Be My Battleground, written by Marvel's own living legend, Stan Lee. So Steve Ditko is not getting plotting credit on this at this point. He will soon. In a couple of months, he'll be getting full plotting credit on both Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. But there's a couple of months here where he's getting plotting credit on Spider-Man, but not Doctor Strange. Illustrated by Marvel's own unsung genius, Steve Ditko lettered by Marvel's own beaming pixie, Artie Simak. We see Doctor Strange finally getting home after his interdimensional troubles, and we have, uh, you know, just a mix of the two greatest strengths of Steve Ditko in one splash page here, in yes. that we see, you know, the whole mystic dimensions that he is passing through, and you see him passing through all these weird mystic objects or other worlds or whatever they might be into the thunderstorming noir New York City. Ditko's just showboating at this point. Yes. <laughs> you know, come on, buddy. We have some fantastic pictures of Strange getting into disguise as just a regular guy with a trench coat and a fedora hiding out in a seedy motel so that he can then send his astral form out. So it turns out that the Ancient One is getting weaker, but he can apparently somehow give him more strength with the Eye of Agamotto, even in his ectoplasmic form. He also apparently has the ability to make his ectoplasmic form invisible even to other ectoplasmic beings, which he does, but then he undoes that to see the Ancient One and to talk to his disciple, and then forgets to put it back on. Oopsie. <laughs> and so Mordo now knows where he is, sends all of his ectoplasmic goons after him. Clea sees that Dormammu is sending all of his power through this mystic window in order to power Mordo to kill Strange. We once again just get some fantastic visuals of the Dark Dimension. And so Clea has a plan, and she's heading off. We'll see what the plan is in a minute. So we have just some fantastic scenes of Strange battling this whole army of ectoplasmic goons and, of course, being completely non-corporeal. They go to every part of the Earth. They're like in what looks like India at one point, and then they're like passing through a cargo ship and then passing through a shark. <laughs> it's, just, it's just really fantastic stuff. So now we find what Clea's plan was. She is going to free the mindless ones to give Dormammu something else to worry about. So she's got some sort of gadget that does this and the mindless ones break out. And Dormammu is like, wait, what? Uh, I've, I've got some stuff I need to do. Mordo, you're on your own. And Mordo's like, wait, wait, we have him. I need your, uh, come on. Uh. So, so there's one thing we know about Dormammu that we found out in his first appearance. It's that he considers stopping the mindless ones more important than fighting Dr. Strange, which is yes. how Dr. Strange managed to defeat him the first time and is now coming back here. Yes. Back to Doctor Strange and the, the army of ectoplasmic goons. They pass through a passenger plane at one point now, and then out into space. And you see that space has very little meaning for them because they're out at the moon almost immediately. Doctor Strange is actually heading into the heart of the sun, which apparently, because of all the fusion reactions, can actually have some sort of effect on their ectoplasmic cells. Okay, I can, I can, I'll, I'll, I'll buy that. Why not? It's just huh? science. It's just science. <laughs> no, no, it's just magic. 
it's just it's just super uh it's just the supernatural it's apparently just super science magic it's just super magic science it's you just gotta go with it yes so dr strange is just going to be fearless and plunge into the heart of the sun even though it might kill him it might not and mordo blinks he's he does not have the intestinal fortitude to follow dr strange into the heart of the sun so dr strange returns to earth in a path that will be different from the one that mordo takes how different it can be seems a little dubious to me but let's just go ahead and accept it so dr strange is able to return to give the ancient one a little more strength we meanwhile see that dormammu has re-encaged the mindless ones dormammu is absolutely furious at mordo that mordo wasn't able to seal the deal and Clea is now worried that eventually Dormammu will figure out that she's the one who freed the mindless ones. Of course, at this point, we only know of her and Dormammu in this dimension, so that's not much of a mystery. But we will eventually <laughs> find out there are more beings here. We uh, did see one other dude last issue. We saw some other Dark uh, okay, dude last issue. Okay. Uh, Doctor Strange returns to his corporeal body and goes walking out into the mean streets of New York with the thunderstorm still going on. Now on the search for eternity, as I lose myself in the night, as I begin the search for eternity. So he now has one word to go on. Right. I'd forgotten to mention that, that when he uh, went to the Ancient One, the Ancient One was still unconscious, but he was like muttering eternity, eternity. So Dr. Strange has no idea what he's talking about, but he's like, okay, this must be important. I have my next mission uh, as part of this big, long epic. Yeah. So once again, Steve Ditko able to exercise his two greatest strengths at one time in this issue. And we continue this nice epic getting away from the little side plot that we had in the previous issue or two and back to the main event. And it is a visual feast well worth the whole 12 cents if you did not like the first half of the book. Yes, absolutely beautiful. Absolutely wonderful story. Good escalation of the Sorry to have now this one mysterious word uh, from Doctor Strange, which, of course, would then become a major plot point in Thor 11 Thunder, of all places, that is also about the search for eternity. Reusing this plot unexpectedly there. I thought it was funny when Doctor Strange is in the sun, they want to show that a bunch of fusion reactions are going on, so they just have these giant atoms. I'm going to be science nerd a number of times during this month. Uh, this is one of them. In the sun, there really aren't that many atoms that have that many electrons around them. True. <laughs> you know, the sun is almost entirely hydrogen with, you know, the secondary amount being helium. There are trace elements of pretty much everything in there, but, you know, most of them are just going to have one electron uh, floating <laughs> around. So, I mean, I got over it. I, I moved on. It's a minor <laughs> a minor thing. It gets the point across. We get it. But yeah, part of me is like, um, excuse me while I push up my glasses. That is not the kind. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I did like how Clea has, I think for the first time, puffy shoulders, which when Paul Smith is then drawing the book in the 80s, he is, of course, like, it is the 80s, and I am into these puffy shoulders. I'm going to bring those back. This is a wonderful issue. I love it. So I think this brings us to the end of this episode. See, I remembered this time. You did. <laughs> yeah, I think these were these were four pretty great issues. We've got a pretty lopsided month because we've got two Dicko stories, three Kirby stories, if you include Taylor Asgard, and even the Bob Powell stories, Inked by Wallywood. I think this is a pretty great first half of this month. 
I cannot argue. So I guess we should sign off and then sign right back on again to do the next episode. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here. Always means a lot to us. Please rate and review us. And uh, as I've been saying since 2020, stay safe out there. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, everybody. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.